Let's pray. <clears throat> Loving Heavenly Father, pray that you would open your word to us, not for its own sake, but that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. It was great hearing Joe read Ecclesiastes 1. Um, I don't know about you, but sitting at the back, it felt like a little bomb had dropped in the church. Ecclesiastes. There was not a little bit of mischief in me choosing that as the companion reading for the 1 Corinthians 3. But we will come back to Ecclesiastes. It's a great book. If it's whetted your appetite, do go ahead and dig deep into it because it's... It is disturbing, but my goodness, is it fresh? And does it not speak into the world as it is still? Anyway, 1 Corinthians 3. So Tom has laid some foundations already. So let me just do a bit of a recap. Um, Corinth is or was a city in what we now call Greece, not far from Athens. It's a port city, so it's cosmopolitan. There's lots of different people, like any ports. You've got people traveling through different influences. It's a buzz, lots of, it's a melting pot, lots of new ideas and new stuff happening. And because it's a port as well, not always savory. So it's this buzzing and wealthy port of ideas and people. And there's a church there, and it's a church that's been planted by Paul. Paul, we read in Acts, has been to Corinth, and there's a community of followers of Christ. And with all the letters that we have, it's, I, I always find it helpful to think of the letters a bit like overhearing someone on the telephone. You know when you're on a train and you hear someone very loudly, very annoyingly, in a conversation and you can't help over here and you're wondering what the person on the other side of the call is saying. There's a little bit of work that we have to do with Paul's letters in thinking, well, he's responding to stuff. You know, that these aren't abstract little lessons plucked from on high. He's speaking to a flesh and blood community that he knows He's hearing stuff about them, he's met them, he's been part of their discipleship and their baptism and then coming to faith and beginning to grow and he's speaking into stuff that he's hearing, realities of their community. And so some of the issues that come up, we have to realise, okay, so that must have been happening then and this must have been going on. And these are the issues, and these are the encouragements. And so there's a bit of a, a piecing together that, that we have to do. Tom has spoken to earlier texts where we had this kind of contrast between the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of the cross. And I want to suggest that the golden thread through the whole letter is the cross as 
foolishness of God. Somehow this weird killing torture instrument right there in what is scandalous, provocative, even offensive is the hope for the whole world. And on one level, it makes no sense because the world is made up of success and money and people who are living well and healthy and in charge and it all looks good. And God comes into the world in Jesus Christ and turns it upside down and says, well, actually, the solution to the problems of this world is in the crucifixion, in the death of Jesus Christ. And somehow in that weakness, in that failure, we're put right with God. And there's hope for the whole world. That's the thread through the whole book, through the whole of the letter of 1 Corinthians. So what I'm going to be doing is building on that theme as we reflect on what Paul is saying here. Um, and just worth noting as well that part of, part of the telephone call that we're trying to imagine, and it, if you read into, one Corinthi into 2 Corinthians as well, so the second letter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth, it gets even worse in the sense that it's clear that people have some issues with Paul. They don't think he's that good. And what's really hopeful for us preachers is that quite a few of them think that Paul's a rubbish preacher. <laughs> yeah, great, this is such a comfort. In the second letter, they think he's absolutely useless. They think his own life somehow contradicts the message because he's not particularly glamorous or powerful. And he's probably a bit ugly. So that's the other part of the conversation that we read into it. You know, even how he looked just wasn't that impressive. And Paul is speaking into objections and he's speaking into little factions and groups. But let's try and unpack a little bit of what he's saying. So if, if you've got access to a Bible, it'd be great to, to have it open now. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul does this little contrast that he does in Romans, and it's really important to remind ourselves what he's not saying here. So, um, just the, the first, first verse. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh. Now, we need to do a quick kind of step back. Whenever Paul puts spiritual against the flesh, what he's not doing is saying the body is really sinful and horrible and the spiritual stuff, which is a bit airy-fairy and not physical, is what's real and good. That's not what Paul is doing here. He uses the same contrast in Romans. That's not what he's doing there. And people through the church history have gone down some wrong avenues by looking at this in this way. What Paul is contrasting is saying the flesh 
kingdom of the world, if we're governed by self, the stuff where we say, I'm in charge, my way, not God's way, that's the flesh. And the spiritual is not sort of invisible stuff, not flesh and blood. Spiritual is when God's in charge. God's in charge of our bodies. God's in charge of places. But only when we let him. So Paul is saying, look, I want to speak to you as people who are ruled by God's ways, not your ways. But the trouble is, quite a lot of you are living according to your way because, well, you're waving banners saying, I'm a follower of Paul, or I'm a follower of Apollos, and I'm a follower of Peter. And Paul says, that's not godly. Because actually, you follow Jesus Christ. And if you want to kind of wave a banner for particular teachers, they're only any good because of who Jesus Christ is, not because of anything that they do. They're just servants. So the flesh spiritual is about who's in charge. Paul is saying, come on, get God in charge again. And he uses this little analogy. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready because you are still of the flesh. Now, again, and I remember when I was a lot younger going through a series in my, it's amazing how these things stick with you. In my youth Bible class, I was in a group called Crusaders, and we did a series on 1 Corinthians. And I remember them telling us, we need to go for solid food, not milk. I remember that sticking with me. And again, Paul's not saying that here. What Paul is doing is turning the categories of the people of Corinth upside down. Because the Greek thinkers of that day, all the trendy philosophers that were big in Corinth. So imagine, I'm, I'm gonna make up a, an, another analogy here, but it'd be like a sort of Islington group of thinkers in a trendy hipster bar with the latest ideas. Yeah. We've got this stuff going on in the church, in Corinth. There's the end crowd with super sophisticated ideas. And there are Greek philosophers that talk about teaching and philosophy that is like milk and then the real stuff, the meaty stuff. And Paul's insulting them. He's taking the mick out of them. He's saying, look, I wanted to come, bracket, you criticise my preaching for being really basic. I wanted to come with really meaty stuff, but you weren't ready for it. Because the milk is the cross of Christ. It's this really simple, offensive, completely topsy-turvy message that's not there for the super intellectuals. It's not there for esoteric learning. 
for hipster bars and clubs to debate earnestly with furrowed brows. This is a message for everyone. And once you start building up little groups that say, ah, oh, we've got it, our teaching, our spirituality, our leaders have got special access. This is what Paul's having a go at. You have missed the point completely. So Paul's kind of turning it back on them and saying, look, you think you want meat, but I gave you milk because that's what it's all about. This isn't some deep hidden mystery that's available just to the few. This is a very simple message where weakness and vulnerability and repentance poured out to God is answered by the cross. So we have that, that word where, I can't remember what the NIV word was used here, um, but in verse 3, for as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not of the flesh. What does it say in verse 3 in the NIV, Joe? For as, does it say anything about jealousy and quarreling? So it uses the same words. Now the word, sorry, I'm, I'm going to use the, a bit of Greek here. You don't need to learn this to go to heaven, just to say. But the word we have for jealousy here is the word zealous. The same word that's used for zealots in the New Testament. You know, so you know the zealots were the, the religious radicals that wanted to rebel. So a better translation, so the commentators say, would be something like if you were a Quarrelling because you were religiously zealous. You thought because of your spiritual superiority that you're going to move away and have your own little group. Then you're acting according to the world. It's not as simple as just bickering. It's the kind of bickering that comes from we are much more spiritually pure than you are. We have access to a truth that you don't. That, that's the connotation that Paul's using here. So, as we had a little meeting some time ago before this series started, and, and I think one, one little phrase that came up in our discussions that follows that thread of the foolishness of the cross versus the wisdom of the world is that Paul is kind of saying, it's really, really simple, folks, but really, really hard. Because isn't our tendency to kind of big up ourselves we feel secure, don't we? Better when we're a little club, in little groups, if we're being really honest. Yeah. We, we do it at school, or well, certainly I did. 
you know, dress in a particular way, you know. Just in case you didn't know, I was into the Smiths, spiky hair, overcoat, looking miserable, so that people could see, ah, oh, he's a Smiths fan. He's a bit cool and studenty and depressed. That was the image I wanted to convey. We do it in church, don't we? I'm going to name some groupings. Forgive me here. Because we all do it. I'm super duper on the Bible. Really evangelical. And I want to pick out all the words and deliberate over everything. And unless it's done like this, sorry, it doesn't count. Or it's all about the worship and the experience and the Holy Spirit coming and being seen in tongues and in healings and if we don't have that Paul talks about this stuff later by the way so it all builds one on top of the other unless we have that then we're not doing it properly or we're missing out or it's all about the churchy thing Smells and bells, dressing up, towing the line in this historic structure that God is part of, and everything else is just ignoring our history and God's work through history. All of us, Paul says, Paul, Apollos, Peter, we all sowed seeds, we all served. I'm going to name some names here. Okay, forgive me, but it's worth just, just going for it. So, Tim Hughes sowed some seeds. Um, David Watson, I'm showing my age here, sowed some seeds. Um, R.T. Kendall, and I, know, I should name some women here as well. Um, give me some names. Sorry? I'm stuck, no. Um, but this is part of the problem, isn't it? It's a very male thing to do, isn't it? Elaine Storkey, yes. But it, it is a very male thing, some of this. The personalities, and at risk of making another controversial point, some of the issues that the church has been, wider church has been facing in recent months, when we build up personalities, and we can't see that actually all of us are sinful. All of us are just servants. And that God isn't in one particular pocket of the church. Anything that is good and true and beautiful that we've found in any ministry, in any part of the church, is because of what God has done. And therefore our response should be generosity and humility so there are there are three little bits of picture language that paul uses verses six to eight the church is god's field different laborers sow seeds and we've been blessed each of us here probably by various people over the years from different parts of the church thank god for them but any fruit God's business. It's not because of them. We thank them for the service. But 
anything that lasts is because of God. Further on, after the the text that we've heard, verses 10 to 14, the church is God's building. So we get this picture of the building where we're all connected and we've we've got a visual aid of a, a literal building being pulled apart a little bit and being rebuilt. And, it, and we can see in the pipework and all the bits that flow behind the scenes, how they're interconnected. So the different bits of the church today, we're all connected. Bless them. Thank God for them. Bits of the church in this room with the different influences, the different parts of the wider church that inspire and bless us. We're all interconnected. And the third image that he uses in verse 16, the church is God's temple. This is the really good news. God lives here in us. So how dare we big up our little bit? God himself is amongst us. So let's go briefly to Ecclesiastes, a little bomb set off in our reading. It is a funny old book, and even in the text that we heard, but certainly if you read the whole book, it's full of apparent contradictions. It's a splurge. It's ascribed to Solomon, so the teacher, the king that is self-introduced in the text, So somebody who's powerful, rich, and full of wisdom. And he says, hey, been there, done that. I still know nothing, Jon Snow. I still don't know anything. And Paul says, cross of Christ. That's all you need to know. Yes, and I'm bound to say this, and I'm sure Paul would want to say this, let's grapple with our teaching, let's go deep. But it's simple, actually. God has come amongst us, died on the cross, that we might live with him. Let's find out more and more of what that means. Therefore, be humble and generous. And let me finish with my own little visual aid, if you like. Um, Somebody in this room that I live with, I don't want to embarrass her, but she she got to see Beyonce a few months ago. Yeah, I was jealous, zealous, yeah. Um, She was plus one for Nellie. So Nellie got to see Beyonce. Amazing. I had to suffer quite a long time of looking at photographs of the VIP area that they had a good sight of. Dad, look, Naomi Campbell, Dua Lipa. Who's Dua Lipa? <laughs> Loads of different people. I had no idea who they were. But they were there. I, I think, um, who's her husband, Beyonce's husband? Jay-Z. Jay-Z. Jay-Z was there. You know, there was champagne. You know, there's long lens on the camera. Look, we can see Jay-Z with champagne. All these famous people. VIP area. 
getting wined and dined with the best view ever of the greatest artist entertainer the world has seen in recent years. Paul wants to say to every single one of us, think back to that little chorus that I didn't know that we sang earlier. Whatever your education, whatever your color, whatever your background, whatever your status in the church, we have all got VIP seats. We're all on the front row. We all get to meet Jesus face to face. That's great news because it's the cross. No special access to anyone beyond we have here. There's no secret wisdom, no magic formula, no wonderful philosophy that unlocks everything. You're all on the front row. Amen.